Thank you, Corey. If you live long enough, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed in your mom, in your dad, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your children. Most of all, if you're honest, you'll be disappointed in yourself. That after having experienced the great grace and love of God, that somehow you just mess up. You'll be disappointed in yourself that you're going to look in the mirror one day and say, how did I make that dumb decision? How could I have ever done that? How could I have not seen that coming? Which is why next week we're going to talk about temptation. But you're going to be disappointed if you open your eyes and live life and you don't live in a cubbyhole and you don't try to isolate yourself from the world and its problems. You're going to feel the pains of disappointment. Larry Gatlin's book, All the Gold in California, he tells about a moment when he woke up in a Holiday Inn in Dallas, Texas, and he was trying to take the carpet fuzz and put it in a freebase cocaine pipe because he'd been stoned and ripped out of his mind for three days and he got up and he looked in the mirror and he thought he saw the devil and he jumped back and he screamed and realized he was only looking at himself. In that book he talks about his disappointments with himself. A good kid raised in Assembly of God Church, taught to fear God and love God, grew up singing gospel music, made millions of dollars in country music, and there he is on the floor in a Holiday Inn, wasted. You and I, whether big or small, and we're not here today to compare who has the greatest disappointment. Because everybody's disappointment is real to them. Your disappointment may seem like it's got such a magnitude or, or you may feel like it's insignificant, but for whatever scale it's on, it's real to you. And, and you may feel like the bottom has dropped out. You may sense that life is not ever going to be the same, that the, the bubble has been burst and the, the picture frame has been shattered and the glass is broken and, and all is not what it once was and never will be again. And I would feel that way if I didn't believe in Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you something, folks. You're going to live your life with disappointment. You might as well just accept it. The issue is, how are we going to deal with it? The question is never why. That's God's question. God knows why. The question for us is, how am I going to respond to this? How will I face this situation in my life? How will I face this disappointment? And I tell you what's going to disappoint you the most is people. Uh, I'm going to write a book one day of things I couldn't say when I was a pastor. But I want to tell you, there's one chapter in there that I'm going to devote to pulpit committees. Because the most disappointed people in a church is the pulpit committee that calls the pastor that thinks he's a knight in shining armor only to find out he's got flaws and scars and warts like everybody else. 
I've never met a pulpit committee that didn't say, oh, when we get this guy, everything's going to be wonderful and everything's going to be great. And I mean, he can preach like Paul and, and sing the stars down and he can do everything. He's just wonderful. And then in about three weeks, they realize he's not. I've got a friend of mine that called me one day. He said, well, I've been here seven weeks. Every member of my pulpit committee has left and joined another church. Boy, you don't talk about a quick honeymoon. That wasn't even time for the bill to get in. You're going to be disappointed in people. That's why I have said since day one almost in pastoring this church, don't put people on pedestals. The only thing that belongs on a pedestal is a vase of flowers or the bust of dead men. Because if you put somebody on a pedestal and they're not dead yet, there's still a chance they could mess up and disappoint you. And before you say, well, I would never do that, just remember, whatever it is, there but for the grace of God go I. And I don't care who you are, and I don't care how much you love God, you've let somebody down. You've disappointed somebody. You haven't lived up to their expectations. You know, you're a, you're a dad or a mom, and you realize you didn't do everything, and one, of your, one day your kids realize that you were flawed. I've had people that I wanted to get to know, only to get to know some of them and find out I didn't really want to get to know them. Because, you see, heroes look better at a distance. When we can look at somebody from far off, when we can see somebody on a stage, when we can observe their life at a casual glance, we can look and not see the flaws. But when we get up close and personal, we see the flaws in ourselves and we see the flaws in them and we realize that they're not what their public persona maybe is. People find that out about a pastor. They find that out about a friend. They find, kids find that out about rock stars that they look up to. And they find out that these people, some of them are very sick. So what do you do when you're disappointed? Retreat? crawl in a hole somewhere, give up, get mad, curse God, spit out vehement words towards somebody that you're disappointed in? I don't think those are going to help you. What will help you is if you learn how to get a hold of God and to take your disappointment before God and leave it there. Because you see, there are times when nothing goes right, and there are times when things don't make sense, and it's always going to be that way. So you have to learn how to deal with the moment. You have to learn how to deal with life. I, I've said this, and I really mean it. Nothing shocks me anymore. I've seen too much, I've heard too much, I've watched too much, I've counseled too many people. Nothing shocks me anymore. I'm dulled to the shock. That doesn't mean nothing hurts me anymore. Because you see, you can be dulled to the shock and still feel the hurt. And so I want to talk to you today if you've ever been hurt by disappointment. If you've ever felt the sting and the letdown of the air going out of your balloon and somebody bursting your bubble and pulling the rug out from under you and catching you at a moment between desperation and despair. 
when you've been disappointed. John of the Cross, I think, summarized it the best. He was a Middle Ages theologian. He called these moments the dark night of the soul. Those times when heaven seems silent, when it seems that all your world has come crashing in, and you don't know what to do, and you don't know where to turn, and you're not even sure anybody really cares. I remember Jack Taylor telling a story one time about standing at the at the back door, and you know how preachers, the glorification of the worm, the preacher goes out and he stands at the back door and you shake his, oh, it's a wonderful sermon, wonderful sermon, you know. And so he said, I just decided to play this game one time. He said, I was standing back at the back door, and he said, you know, people go and say, hey, preacher, how are you doing today? He said, I just found out I've got three days to live. Good, good, good to see you. God bless you. Have a good day. Because nobody really listens, see. We don't really want to know because we're scared their pain could become our pain. And their hurt could become our hurt. And there are those dark nights when you wish you could laugh and you can't laugh and nothing on television is funny and no, no joke is funny and everything is depressing and discouraging and life is not really what you thought it was going to be. Your kids didn't turn out the way you thought they would. Your marriage is not what you thought it would be. Your income is not what you had hoped it would be. I'm talking to a lot of median adults who thought you would be in a different place in your point right now, and you're frustrated with it, and you're mad at God about it. And you're taking it out on the church, and you're taking it out on your family because you're not at peace with yourself. I'm talking to people that want to blame God for where they are, and they're disappointed. God didn't do what I wanted Him to do. God didn't do it the way I wanted Him to do it. And so if I can this morning, I want to give you five principles to apply to your life. And I just want to read a verse out of Isaiah, and then we'll look in a few moments at Psalm 120 and 121. Isaiah 50 and verse 10 says, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of His servant, that walks in darkness, and has no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Notice what the, what the Isaiah says. He says, when you're walking in darkness and you don't have light, what are you supposed to do? Trust in the Lord. Trust in the name of the Lord. Rely on him. So there are five principles. Number one, and we're going to go through these fairly quickly. Number one, disappointment is not unusual. You ever thought about what Job said? Job said, God makes my path darkness. Habakkuk's big question, why? Paul was perplexed about his situation. Listen, if you're disappointed, you're in good company. Because Job was disappointed. Habakkuk was disappointed. Isaiah was disappointed. All the prophets, you read their stories and what they went through. They were disappointed in how things turned out. I've been faithful to God and look at where it's gotten me. Martin Luther was disappointed. You ever read the story of Martin Luther? He did not have a happy marriage. Here's the man who was the founder of the Protestant Reformation that broke it free that man could be saved and justification was by faith and by grace, not of works. He realized it, wrote the great commentary on Romans, broke free the Protestant Reformation, and yet life at home for him was hell. C.H. Spurgeon 
the greatest preacher to ever live. Still nearly 200 volumes of his work in print. Tens and hundreds of thousands of pages. And yet Spurgeon pastoring his church, which had 10,000 people on Sunday morning and 10,000 on Sunday night, almost lost his job in a rebellion led by his brother. John Calvin. Great times of distress and disappointment. You read the story of the Wesleys. You read the story of D.L. Moody. You read the story of the great saints and you find out every one of them has gone through a time of disappointment, of discouragement, of despair. You know, have I been born to get to this point and is this all there is? There's a line in that movie, as good as it gets. What if this is as good as it gets? What if where you are right now, disappointed and discouraged and in despair, what if right now that's as good as it's ever going to get again? What are you going to do about it? You going to be mad at God? You're going to take it out on your family? You're going to say, Lord, this is the pit in which I am. But I'm going to praise you in the pit. Disappointment's not unusual. Secondly, disappointment has a purpose. The psalmist said, God, your ways are past finding out. You see, what God wants to do is God wants us to apply eternal truth to present problems. Disappointments have a purpose. There are some things about the character of God you don't find out on the mountain. There are aspects of God's nature and God's love and God's character that you will never know when times are good. It is when all the bottom falls out that you say, boy, I found God to be faithful. Listen, you sing great as I faithfulness not because He was faithful on the mountain. You sing great as I faithfulness because when you got sucked through a keyhole one day, He was there on the other side of it waiting for you. That's why He's faithful. That's why He's great. Because when everything falls apart, He's still faithful. Your disappointments have a purpose with God. God may not have caused it, but He has allowed it to take something out of you so He can put something in you. Thirdly, disappointments don't last forever. And thank God they don't. There have been some days that seem to stretch into weeks and months for me, but they have not lasted forever. There was a song that Truth sang back about 73, I guess, called Little Flowers. Little flowers never worry when the wind begins to blow. There's a great line in that song. For if it never, never rains, then they'll never, ever grow. You've got to have a few storms in your life so that you can have the fruit that God wants to put in your life. Disappointments don't last forever. And just because it doesn't make sense to us does not mean it is senseless in God's economy. Number four, disappointments are His appointments. Now Psalm 120 and Psalm 121 are part of a lengthy section of the Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. It's the picture of a man who is coming from the depths of despair to the heights of worship. And these psalms all tie together. When you read 
I would encourage you sometime to read Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 in one setting and see the range of emotions and feelings that the psalmist is going through. And you have to tie these two together because he's moving from disappointment to dependence to deliverance. Look at Psalm 120. He says, In my trouble I cried to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. Now the psalmist here specifically mentions what his disappointment is. Someone is slandering him or undermining there's a lying tongue and he's disappointed in a person. But I want you to notice what he does. He doesn't complain about it. He doesn't whine about it. He doesn't defend himself. He begins to pray. And I want you to circle two phrases. I cried, he answered. I cried, he answered. Why do you cry to God? Because God answers. What do you do when you cry out to God? You know that He answers. And one of the great dangers for us when we are disappointed is we quit communicating with the Father. We become mad children who go off and slam their door and lock it and sit on the bed and suck their thumb and gripe about what God's doing in our life. Rather than going and saying, Lord, here I am. You know, crying leads to answers sometimes. I want to make three recommendations about prayer. First of all, pray when you feel like it. Pray when you don't feel like it. And pray until you feel like it. In other words, pray without ceasing. That's what Paul said. Pray when you feel like it. Boy, there are just times when you feel like praying. But I'm going to tell you, there are more times I don't feel like praying than times I feel like praying. Pray when you don't feel like it. And pray until you do feel like it. And verse 5, he says, Woe is me. And verse 6, Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. The psalmist ends his psalm. He does not end on a high note. There's not a great crescendo and a hallelujah chorus at the end of this psalm. He is discouraged. There seems to be no way out. These nations that are surrounding him are noted for aggression and violence and hatred. And he thinks there's nothing that's going to change, but that's why Psalm 121 follows Psalm 120. And that brings us to principle number five. Divine presence is greater than present disappointment. Divine presence is greater than present disappointment. Now, if you notice the 120th Psalm, he's looking around in anguish. In Psalm 121, he's looking up. He's not looking at his circumstances anymore. He's looking to the Father. He's looking to the Lord. By Psalm 120, you could write the word complaint. By 121, you could write the word comfort. He's gone from complaining to finding the comfort that only God can give. And look at what he says in verse 1. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from self-help groups. My help comes from my how-to book. My help comes from my weekly radio broadcast that I listen to every week. My help comes from my favorite television preacher. My help comes from my Sunday school class. My help comes from my friends. My help comes from my family. No. Because all of those will let you down. My help comes from the Lord. Because I'm going to tell you, when you're disappointed, you feel alone. 
And the only person that can get in the space that you occupy is the Lord. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. <laughs> the psalmist is saying, Lord, you made all this stuff. You knew all this stuff was going to happen, so I'm going to look to you to help me out of it. Now, I want you to look at verse 1. He looks to the Lord in verse 1. Verse 2, he leans on the Lord. Then he picks up in verse 3. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Verses 3 through 8, he leaves it with the Lord. We're good at looking to the Lord. We're just not good at leaving it with the Lord. You know what we do? We worry on our knees. We get out and we say, Oh God, you know the disappointment I got. You know the problem I got. You know the pain I've got. And Lord, I'm just going to, I want to look to you and I want to let you help me. And Lord, I thank you that I was in that service today and I, I thank you that I heard that sermon. And, and Lord, I'm just looking to you for help. Oh Lord, the problems that I've got in my life. You just can't believe the problem. We've got to go to work and tell somebody. We've got to go home. We'll talk about it at lunch. You know why? Because we look to God, but we don't leave it there. Now, you can keep carrying it around if you want to, or you can leave it with God who can carry it around for you. Which do you want, the yoke that you put on yourself or the yoke that He gives you? He said, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You try to carry around your own burdens, my friends, and you're going to find out it's a heavy load. He leaves it with the Lord. In verses 1 and 2, he's speaking in the first person. He's making a proclamation. In verses 3 through 8, he's speaking in the third person, and he's standing on a promise. He commits himself to look to the Lord, to lean on the Lord, and to leave it with the Lord. Now, if you're going to leave it with God, you've got to do two things. You have to reject two ways of handling disappointment. Number one, never play the blame game. Don't we live in a culture of blame? I mean, isn't that what all the talk shows are about? I mean, you, you watch them from, from Montel to Oprah to, to Jerry Springer. Everybody's mad at somebody and everybody's blaming somebody. Hey, look in the mirror, folks. The only people we've got to blame is ourselves. And if it's beyond ourselves, it's sin. Don't play the blame game. Don't do the pointing fingers game. Well, they made me be that way. They made me act that way. You know, everybody in prison today says it was somebody else's fault. If that officer hadn't shown up with that gun, I'd be free today. Well, guess what? You sinned, you got caught. Can't blame anybody else. We can't stand before God one day and say, Well, God, you don't know the situation I was in. We stand before God accountable for one life, and that's our own. I have to give an account to Him. I can't look around and say, Now, Lord, I realize that, you know, heaven's a long time, and so I've got some things against that person back there and, and that person over there. And you don't, you know, the reason I reacted the way I did is that, that lady way back over there in that line back over there, she, I don't think she's going to make it anyway, and I'm surprised she's here. But, but I, I just want to show you, Lord, that person right there, that's the reason that I'm the way I am. You think that's going to wash with God? No. You can't play the blame game. And I tell you where the blame game will leave you. You'll ultimately end up blaming God. And when you blame God, you've lost all hope to get out of your situation. I just made a list. Blame never restores. It just deepens the wound. Blame never solves the problem. It complicates it. Blame never smiles. It always frowns. Blame never gets over it. It always remembers. Blame never builds up. It always 
destroys. Don't play the blame game. Secondly, don't plan a pity party. Pity is the number one enemy of the soul. You ever been in one of those meetings that you just kind of wish you could become invisible and back out of? You know, you just happen to say, or somebody happened to say, well, you know, it's, it's been a hard week. And somebody says, well, you think it's been a hard week for you? You should have seen the week I had. And then somebody says, well, it's been a hard month. And then somebody else says, it's been a hard year. And then somebody else says, I've had a hard life. And then everybody's in there comparing who's had the toughest time. And you're playing top the depression. And it's a very popular game in our society. Whatever you've had wrong with you, I've got something worse. And so people have a tendency to get around and say, well, we've all got problems, and let's just all sit here and, and have a pity party. Let's go out in the garden and eat worms. Feel sorry for ourselves. Mope around. Pull the shades shut. Keep the lights off. And hope nobody calls. Because we're having a pity party. Look at verse 1, if you will. He's in a valley. He says, I will look up to the hills. He's not standing on the hill getting this perspective. He's in a valley. And in Scripture, a valley is always associated with disappointment and difficulty and defeat. The psalmist says, I'm down here in the pits, but he will not allow your foot to slip. That phrase is used three times in the Psalms, and it describes he'll not allow your foot to have a setback, to have a, a permanent misfortune. He who keeps Israel. He's praying to the one. He's reminding himself of God's words to Jacob in Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you in all places wherever you go. In this short psalm, he uses the word keep, keeper, or preserve six times. All that tells me is that you and I are safe in God's control. He's going to keep you. He's going to watch over you. No matter what your disappointment, no matter what your hurt, no matter what your pain, no matter what has just pulled the rug out from under you and taken the wind out of your sails, He will keep you. He will preserve you. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this point forth and forever. Threefold unconditional promise. He protects, He keeps, and He guards. When you're disappointed, when you're in the valley, you need to look up, not look around. You need to remember that He protects, and He keeps, and He guards. We're not here today to compare sorrows and setbacks. We're here to talk about how do you overcome disappointment. This week we were on vacation and we'd spent some time in the North Georgia mountains and we were coming back through Atlanta and it was one of those days, you, I don't know if this ever happens to you, it's one of those days when you know you need a haircut. You ever have one of those days when all of a sudden nothing goes right, you know, you know ladies, you especially know your hair works good and then all of a sudden I've got to get a haircut, you know, I've got to go get trimmed. And so we, we had one of those days as a family, all four of us. And we had been in and out of town, and we hadn't had a chance. And so we all four went 
ask somebody a good place to get a haircut, went, went to this place and asked for the group rate. So, you know, well, you do four cheaper than one, you know. Well, they didn't give a group rate. So, so we went in, and Erin got her hair cut, and Haley got her hair cut, and Terry got hers cut, and I got mine cut. Well, I got the guy in the first chair. And so I, I realized the minute I sat down, this was not going to be, I just get to sit and get my hair cut. I realized I was engaged in a conversation, big time. This guy opened his mouth and started talking, and I mean, it was... I mean, it was just going. We, we jumped the circuit of conversations. And he's cutting my hair. And I always worry because I'm never sure about people who have pointed things in their hand around my head and talk at the same time. It worries me sometimes, you know. So I, I'm sitting there and we're talking. And he, so he finally gets to the question, well, what are you here for? You know, where have you been? What are you doing? And we kind of talk about all that. And he says, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I'm a pastor. He said, Where? I told him Albany, Georgia. So we have a little conversation about that. And so it, he kind of gets past the superficial stuff after he finds out I'm a pastor, which usually I try not to say because they usually turn me off. But, but you know, I said it that day. Usually I say I'm in communications and not just egg them on a little bit. Because uh, when you say pastor, all of a sudden shields go up, you know, locks are on the doors and everything. But So I said pastor, so he starts kind of loosening up with me a little bit. And so we start talking about his family, and he's married, he's told me about his wife, and several things, and so I, I just trying to engage in the conversation. I said, so does, uh, does your wife work? And he said, no, she's permanently disabled. Now this guy's about 26 years old. His wife is permanently disabled. And I said, well, how'd that happen? He said, well, he said, we have a 22-month-old uh, baby. And during the childbirth, a lot of things began to happen. And he said, we almost lost the baby. In fact, we didn't think the baby, the doctors did not give our baby any hope of living through her first night. And things began to collapse on my wife, and things happened with her, and she is a candidate for a lung transplant, which, by the way, is the rarest of all transplants is a lung transplant. It's very, very hard. There are only about five doctors in America that do this surgery. And one of them's at Emory, and they live in that area because of this particular doctor. He says, you know, one good thing about it is that I've got a doctor that makes house calls because he doesn't have that many patients. And so we began to talk about what was wrong with his wife and the difficulties that she has. And he said, you know, he said, my wife has to have $35,000 a month in medicine. And I mean, my chin dropped, my countenance I know dropped. And I said something, and the minute it came out of my mouth, I knew it was the wrong thing to say. I said, Andrew, I am so sorry. And he stopped, and he took my chair, and he turned it, and he leaned down and looked at me in the face. He said, what are you sorry for? You didn't do anything. This is just one of those things in life that you've got to learn to live with. Now, we're not here to compare disappointments, but I want to ask you something. You spending $35,000 a month on medication? Cutting hair? 
can you look God in the face today and say, Lord, I don't have to feel sorry for myself. This is just how life is. And you have to learn to make the best of it and trust God.